Hello and welcome to the Caspian podcast uh, with me, Mark Elliott, and today with Gwyn Birchall, who has uh, been living in Azerbaijan, well, on and off largely, I believe, since 1997. I hope I've got that right. Um, she puts as a, her title on, on um, LinkedIn as Social Policies Advisor, but I know that she's absolutely best known for the, as the founder of the United Aid for Azerbaijan. And uh, I'm I hope you'll be able to tell those who who don't know what that is, uh, what that does and, and how it got you an MBE. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I first came to Azerbaijan towards the end of 1997. And um, really, it was an adventure. It started out as an adventure. Um, I certainly had no plan to sort of build this big NGO and, and, and dedicate half my life to, to what we've been doing. But, you know, all adventures start somewhere and turn out in a, you know, in this kind of way, don't they? So, um, so tell, people came... tell people basically what is, um, uh, what is the uh, charity that you started? Um, because I think for people that haven't seen it, just, just so we know, we, we set the, uh, the guidelines here. Okay, so UEFA, as I call it, United Aid for Azerbaijan, is um, uh, its mission is to aid long-term development of life in Azerbaijan with a particular focus on children, health, and education. And our main objectives are, um, they come from a time when I visited a, a, a children's institution for children with disabilities where every child was lying in bed, um, hurting themselves, you know, damage, you know, uh, it was horrible conditions. It was a time when, so uh, in the post-Soviet um, uh, uh, period, uh, many uh, things were being found out about how children with disabilities were being kept. And, um, and so I visited these institutions and saw um, these awful, Pick, you know, vision scenes of children um, all sort of lying in bed or tied to their bed or hitting their head against the wall and, you know, all sorts of awful things. And at that point, you just say to yourself, you, you can't just walk away from that and just um, not do anything about it. You, you have to. Um, so that was the starting point of, of, of UEFA's main body of work, which was to uh, prevent that from happening. Um, and so during all these years, all our mission, all our focus has been spent on um, putting in place services for children with disabilities and their families in their communities to provide the support they need in their home, so in, this their, is, in their village, in their town. So this is um, a way to get the children out of, out of um, the institutionalised situation and, and, and into a situation yes, that's a little better. Yeah, to prevent them from being placed in care in the first place. Families put their children in care when they feel unable to cope or because they're told that's what you should do when you have a child with disability um, because of stigma issues. So um, they feel forced to in a lot of cases or, you know, parents split up. You've got a single mother um, having, you cannot, if you're on your own, you cannot cope uh, with uh, looking after a child with disabilities 
and work at the same time. It's not possible. Um, so there are many situations. Every case is different. And um, so what we have been working on is uh, building the sort of range of health and education and social services that families and parents need to uh, give them the um, an alternative to putting their children in care and to support the inclusion of children to education and to um, and to give the, these children the, their rights to live as a normal part of society as any other child. Um, so that's been the mission, and that's why it's uh, you know why I'm still here 23 years later because it's not an overnight job. It takes years and years and years. Um, well, I, I, I have a vague memory of meeting you right when you were first there and you went to uh, around to a lot of the expats at the time telling us that you discovered these terrible things going on. Um, and from what I seem to, th I think I've read it somewhere, that you, you had 500 quid to start this charity. But I, I, I don't know if I'm right, but I think I've read somewhere that, that you've since raised over $5 million. Is, is that, is that true? probably more than double that by now yeah um yes well, that's right yeah um but that gives a spent, sort of sense of the scale of what, what you've spent, been doing yeah yeah and that's what i spend a majority of my time doing is trying to raise the money to to keep all these services running to to find the you know find the practice the approaches that we need to bring in trainers to you know it's it's a huge scale job to to we work in 22 regions of azerbaijan wow. you know we had at one stage we had about 150 people on the payroll um so you know it's it's a large scale job and you know when you're paying that many people it's it all adds up pretty quick well now what was your background then so so you did you come to Azerbaijan thinking that you would be working in, in the NGO sector or you just, uh, I, I gather your father had actually worked briefly in Azerbaijan. Was that part of what um, spurred you? What, how, did, how did you get the whole idea of coming to Azerbaijan in the first place? Um, well, yeah, my dad had been coming since 92. He was working with SOCAR. Um, and um, helping them on developing the early contract, first contract, um, helping them find investors, and and, um, and you know he, that was his sort of role was working with them to get things uh, moving here in the oil and gas sector. And so I met a lot of Azerbaijanis before I came here. Um, I started hearing a lot about Azerbaijan at a time when everybody just knew this part of the world as Russia. Um, and yeah, exactly. We that's what we thought it was just Russia. You know, we didn't know all these individual countries. Um, so I was interested, you know, to visit this part of the world that nobody knew anything about. You know, was, you know when when do you get a chance to do something like that? Once in a lifetime. And um, and and I had been working in the charity sector in the UK um, and found that it was a sector that really that I really felt satisfied working in. So I'd been working um, with the Samaritans for a couple of years um, as volunteer. I've been working with 
children's uh, a char children's charity that supported terminally ill children and their families, learning how to do all the fundraising and the administrative side of of, uh, of running a charity. So you know, I got the practical side and the administrative side in my previous you know few yeah. for a couple of years before coming out, and so I you know. But I just have to. Use. I just have to ask what what was the biggest surprise about the Azerbaijan that you discovered in 1997, which I, I mean, is an utterly different country to um, anyone visiting now, 25 years later, or 23 years later, mm -hmm. would, would find a sort of a fairly modern, glitzy city. But what was your first image or your, what did you tell people back home that Baku looked like? Um, there weren't many cars. That's for sure. Um, and it was quite grey and concretey, you know, um, that sort of old Soviet uh, utility style of building. I mean, it was very, very much like that. Um, not many shops, not many. There were no like bars, restaurants, cafes. It was a very sort of utilitarian city, let's put it that way. Um, and I spent a lot of time just walking around, just learning how to sort of navigate my way around the city. Um, but one thing that really surprised me uh, coming here and talking to people was I found out that World War II had a different side to it. You know, this, the, that, and uh, this is what surprised me because we never got taught this at school, um, that Hitler's army was advancing towards Baku because they needed oil to fuel them, uh, you know, fuel their mission in, in World War II. And then uh, Stalin put in place his army to prevent that. And that was a major contributor to the end of the Second World War. And I, we don't hear that story mm. in, in the West, do we? So uh, that, that always remains to me. It's like, oh, my God, you know, this whole different side of life, this whole different side of the story. And that was, I suppose you could say it was my first understanding that what we read in the media, what we read in our books is not the objective truth. No, so that's, that's for so me, true. that was like a real big eye-opener. Yeah. Now, at some point, I'm, I'm presuming that you've taught yourself Azerbaijani or did you speak some Russian? How, do, how did you um, cope culturally and in terms of language? I mean, because you, you, you went into action very, very fast. I'm sort of, how did you manage it? Yeah. Um, my dad gave me some very good uh, pieces of advice in the very early stages. He said, um, always smile, always smile and be friendly to everybody, always, because you never know when, you know, they're, then they're your support if you get into trouble. If everybody around you knows you're this friendly person, they might be there to help you when you need their help. And that's come true many times. And he also said, um, whenever you're negotiating with somebody in a Muslim country, always make sure it's a win-win situation. Don't let them lose, don't let anybody lose face. Um, and I, I practiced that ever since then as well. So with regards to language, um, I have to confess, I'm not fluent by any means. I mean, I can get by. Um, and what I found in the early days was everybody wanted to practice their English on me. Mm. So it was very hard to, yeah, very hard to actually get anywhere with 
with the local language. And most people were speaking this hybrid of Azerbaijanian and Russian. So yeah, they start in Russian, switch into Azeri, then go back to Russian again. It's very quite confusing, actually. Um, but, you know, I learned what you, I learned what I needed to get by. And I think over the years, I've just got very adept at body language. And you can understand everything through body language, as well, of course, knowing words, knowing phrases, knowing um, intonation, this different type of thing. But yeah, I mean, I've always, I've, I've managed. So mm. yeah. No, because well, I'm not what, very what, good at English in either. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that, um, I, congratulations, by the way, I gather that it was last week you, you, uh, were accepted as an Azerbaijani citizen. If, if I got that right, mm -hmm. so That's so, right, yeah. so how? I, I mean, I, I know if you go the other way around, it, it's, there's often an awful lot of hurdles one has to cross, and and I I don't think I've actually talked to someone that's that's done this uh, becoming an Azerbaijani citizen. Uh, how difficult is it, and and uh, what what are the hardest things that you have to do to 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 become an Azerbaijani? Um, well, I think the simple answer is you can't. Um, <laughs> it was by presidential order. Um, basically, I wrote to the president and said, you know, I have dedicated half my life. I love Azerbaijan. Um, and please make me a citizen. You know, I know you can't have dual citizenship, but please, can you give me this special dispensation? And then it happened. Wow. Is that right? So, so you are, so when, when I say I haven't met many people that have done it, that's because it doesn't happen normally. That's, that's fantastic. Congratulations. And, and I mean, did you, have you talked to the president in person? No, um, but I remember in early years before he was president, when he was with Soka, and I was at a function with my dad, and he went, oh, look, there's, uh, there's Ilham, let's go over and say hello. So I went over and I was like, hi, Mike, hi, oh, this is my daughter, Gwen, oh, hi, Gwen, shook hands and everything. So I met him then, <laughs> before before uh, he was president. And and so so let's let's... Look at the other side. When you in, in 2004, you were granted an MBE for your, your services to um, helping children in, in Azerbaijan. And and I I mean, I've seen the video. You, you do meet the Queen and it, it looks like you talk for a little while. And I, I have to say, again, yeah. I'm rather intrigued to know well, what did she say? What did you tell her? What was the conversation? Um, I, I know it's a little petty. But... My big mistake is I didn't write it down afterwards I should have done um because now I can't really remember um but I do remember you know she was asking about Azerbaijan what I was doing there she I remember her being very very well informed about the country and the situation and I was and you know so she, yes she was talking to me for quite a while um and my big regret is I didn't write it all down afterwards. But, you know, you're so caught up in the moment. It's so exhilarating, exciting. Just, you know, don't think about these things. But, um, but yes, it was. And also I was really desperately, like, trying to stay upright because I was wearing high heels and I'd not long given birth um, to my son. And um, 
and you had to walk backwards. So you walked to her, she, you know, talked to you, and then when she's finished with you, she shakes, she kind of holds your hand and gives you a little push, and you have to walk backwards and curtsy. So I was mainly, like, thinking, do not fall over, do not fall over. (laughs) (laughs) You you hope she doesn't push you too hard. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So did you take your son with you? No, he was just a little baby, so... Um, he he uh, stayed at home. My parents so, came. So now, is your son uh, in Azerbaijan? Is he becoming an Azerbaijani? Is is he an Azerbaijani? Yes, he was also he was also given the citizenship as well. Yeah. Oh, wonderful! Lovely. So he's grown up. Yeah, he's he, you know he does speak fluent Azerbaijani and Russian. Mm, so um, yeah, I made sure. Because I was so rubbish at languages, I made sure he was good at it. Yeah, yeah, that's truly a gift. So you're once again helping children in all kinds of ways. Now, um, the other thing that I, I noticed that you, as we say, you've raised millions of dollars, and and you've you've had some very interesting um, attempt, different ways of going about this. Now, I, I remember at one point you were taking over a guest house in in Ivanovka. Oh yeah. Um, which maybe yes, that yeah. didn't work, but I mean, yeah, did that did that for a little while. Mm-hmm. It was too too labour intensive. Mm. Um, you, if you do that, you've got to do that as your full time thing. Yeah, I, but I now what we've done, since, yeah, what we've done since then is we've opened up this um, handmade chocolates business, Enjoy Chocolates. So we make um, um, chocolates with Azerbaijani flavors. So all, all the flavors you typically see here, like Reyhan and Tahun, you know, purple basil, tarragon, sumac, pomegranate, uh, cognac, you know, lemon. So all, all the ingredients are from Azerbaijan and we've made these very unusual blends um, mm. and, um, and Israeli cream and then encased in uh, Belgian chocolate. Absolutely delicious. We've just expanded the range to uh, ice cream as well. And we've opened up a little shop in the old city. So um, the idea, what well, we've already been running this for a couple of years online. And now we've opened up the shop. And the idea is that this generates the income that we need to fund our services. So it's a little bit early days, but uh, we'll make it work. What a wonderful idea. So you're using Belgian chocolate, but local flavours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a... Who who is making the chocolate? I mean, that's no easy matter, is it? It's quite... There's quite a a challenge to to making a good... Yeah, well... I've got a local lady who who makes them. um, But we all learnt. It was myself, an American chef, and an English um, amateur chef, and the three of us sort of put our heads together in the early stages to like, come up with these flavors and learn how to, to make chocolates. And then uh, we uh, asked this local lady that I knew who was a very good cook. Uh, she joined us to learn how to make them, and we've just been building our skills since then. Wow. 
Now, uh, we're getting a little near the end. Uh, just just before I forget to do it, if people want to contribute to what mm-hmm. you call UEFA, I always called it UEFA, but uh, UEFA sounds like football to me. Yeah. But, I know, I know. But if, <laughs> if, people, if people want to contribute, do, uh, are you looking for donations? Do you mainly have corporate sponsors or is it mainly chocolate? Everything. No, I mean, that, that's how I've been raised in all the these years is from, from every single source possible. And if anybody, please just get in touch. We always need, we, we don't do project by project. And then, you know, I've kept, I've kept all my staff, for, you know, continuously. I don't like get to an end of project and say, right, projects ended, goodbye. You know, we've been building their skills, building their experience. And if they don't, we have to uh, ensure that everybody stays in their work. They have to keep providing services. The children need the services day in, day out. We can't stop. So, um, mm. yes, donations. Right. And, and how many, approximately how many children are, are anywhere we... Anywhere possible would be fantastic. And uh, Sorry, approximately how many children approximately are Approximately how many? Yeah. In a year, well, pre-COVID, obviously during COVID, uh, that made things challenging. Uh, but pre-COVID, we were working directly, like directly with about 3,000 children a year. 3,000. Thank you. Mm. Well, Gwen, just, just to finish it off, you, you want, when I asked you the sort of things you like to talk about, you, you rather um, obliquely said, well, what about the spirit of adventure? So sum it up for us. What what gives you a spirit of adventure and and... and and what would be a lesson that you can give us all on that? Um, well, I suppose for me, this has been 23 years and every single day has been different. Um, and challenging. And there have been humongous challenges and hurdles to overcome. But we have. We've always done it. You know, and people have said, oh, that's impossible. You'll never manage that. that it's just not, not going to happen. We do it. We do it because we believe in what we're doing. Um, and then other people believe in us. And, that, and we get past all these challenges. Um, and, uh, you know, Azerbaijan is a difficult country. Um, it's a challenging country. And uh, so the fact that we've managed to, to keep going and growing and, and achieve a lot of not just working with children but uh, policy change um, legislative change pushed for so many different reforms and achieved them you know I think that's a real um, sort of that shows how dedicated the team have been all these years you know and uh, and I think that's that's where the adventure comes in because you know it's it can be a lot of fun as well Yes, and I, I, we were talking to Svante Cornell a couple a week or two ago, and he was saying that um, a lot of these challenges, uh, a country that sort of suddenly appears from nowhere almost, um, and then that's a little bit obviously unfair, but with the, the sudden collapse of the Soviet Union, there was so much needed doing, and it, it does take an enormous mm-hmm. amount of um, vision from um, from a few people with real energy and vision. And, and obviously, Gwen, thank you very much for being one of those great people that's done it. And uh, I will just remind people, um, uh, if you'd like to um, read more about the charity, it's UAFA.AZ, I believe. And 
and we'll put a link on there. You've been listening to the Caspian podcast with me, Mark Elliott, and uh, Gwen Birchall, MBE. Thank you very much, Gwen. Looking forward to seeing you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark.